Hello and welcome to the Gamers Tavern. Uh, I'm kind of winging this intro, so forgive me if it seems a little bit scattered. Uh, basically, I'm recording this, exporting it, then we're recording an episode of the podcast and I'm packing everything up so that we can go to Gen Con and we're, we're going to be doing a lot of stuff there. Uh, Ross and I are both going to be at Gen Con in Indianapolis this weekend, Thursday through Saturday. Um, if you want to find out what we're up to, the podcast's Twitter feed is the best way to get hold of us. Uh, it's at Gamers Tavern PC, as in podcast. Uh, you can also follow me. I'm at Abstruse. Or you can follow Ross at, at Ross Watson One. That's R-O-S-S-W-A-T-S-N. And the number one. Uh, you can follow us. That's the best way to get hold of us. We may be announcing anything that we have going on that may be public. Or you can tweet at us if you've got something going on that you think we might be interested in. Uh, this episode, we've got Chris Premis and Sean Patrick Fanny to talk about gaming milestones. Those rites of passage that we all go through as gamers. Uh, but before we get to that, I just want to warn you. Uh, toward the end, uh, Ross's, he just moved to Colorado. His mover showed up with his stuff in the middle of the recording. They showed up an hour early, which... Wow, movers actually showed up early. That's kind of shocking. But uh, he had to drop out for the last little bit, and so did Sean to help him move in. Uh, but uh, Chris and I wrapped things up pretty well. And uh, without further ado, go ahead and grab a drink from the bar and take a seat at the table in the corner. And we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Are you looking for a new game to play? DriveThruRPG is the Internet's largest source of role-playing games. Enjoy our game table episodes with Shadowrun, Dungeons and Dragons, or Mutants and Masterminds, and you want to join in? Or is World of Darkness, Battletech, or Fate more your thing? Or maybe you just want to check out games from our guests like The Cursed and Shintar, the Savage World settings. Just go to gamerstavern.org slash RPG and you can have a new game to play in minutes. And they also have the largest selection of free games, source books, and starter sets anywhere in the world. Go to GamersTavern.org slash DriveThruRPG and support the show with every purchase. Hello and welcome to episode number 39 of the Gamers Tavern podcast. I'm your host, Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mont Jr. And tonight we have with us a couple of great guests, uh, big guys in the gaming industry, Chris Premus. Hello. And Sean Patrick Fannin. I resent the implication that I'm fat, even though it's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tonight we've got a great show. We're going to be talking about rites of passage in gaming. But before we jump into that, let's do what we always do here in the Gamers Tavern and let our listeners know a little bit about who our guests are and where they might know them from on the interwebs and things of that nature. And we do this in the form of a gaming character sheet. Now, Sean's been through this before, so I'm going to kind of have him go first. Um, Sean, can you briefly tell our listeners about you and your gaming career as a gaming character sheet? What system? I always ask this question. What system do you like? <laughs> well, what what system are you as a gamer in when you think of your gaming character sheet? All right. Well, of course, right now, these days, it's Savage Worlds. Okay. <laughs> and uh, as a Savage Worlds developer, I'd like to say, think I have at least a D10 on the scale with Shintar uh, coming up, and hey, with uh, nomination for best rules, I might even be able to claim D12 now. I might have leveled up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the Ennies um, uh, for this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shintar Legends Arise best rules, which I'm still just stunned by. Legends of Leash got uh, best electronic book. Um, you know, uh, I've got, uh, I, I could think I could at least claim veteran rank at this point because I've been doing this thing since 1988. And uh, just before the we, we started up, 
Chris very uh, kindly pointed out that he saw uh, one of my more famous books, The Finish of Open Gamer's Bible, sitting uh, on the shelf at a used bookstore in Seattle, which, I mean, that just makes me giddy. Uh, that's it, you know, that that's uh, that's out there for someone to grab. Um, though I'm kind of disappointed you didn't get it, Chris. I mean, honestly. Oh, sorry, man. <laughs> Jeez. I, I, I could don't have, like... I'm not rich. I work in gaming. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely, I definitely, with, like Chris, I have the poverty uh, hindrance. So, you know, there, there's that. Got connections. I think, I think it could be said I have, uh, my level of schmooze is probably at least a D8, D10. Um, right. What are some things you're known for in the gaming industry? Well, the book, The Fantasy Role-Playing Gamers Bible. Of course, I started out, uh, as you well know, uh, fourth edition Champions Days. Uh, that was the beginning of my career. I've dabbled in and out of the, game, the, the computer games industry, but mostly tabletop stuff. First edition Star Wars, I did some work for them. Did a lot of work for the latest edition of Star Wars. Aforementioned Shintar, but I've also had a, a hand in helping Shane and the rest of the crew uh, just constantly uh, improve Savage Worlds as a core rule set. Uh, I worked for Gamma and helped run Origins and the Gamma Trade Show for a while. Uh, I spent a good bit of time uh, as a marketing and communications uh, manager for DriveThru RPG and RPG Now, uh, which is where Sean's Pick of the Day came from. And Sean's Pick of the Day.com, thanks to Daryl, is, is up and running and, and going really, really well. Uh, so kind of everything except art because my stick figures look like they have epilepsy. I've kind of done it all. Um, <laughs> all right. we, we've recently discovered I suck at business though, which is why I'm happy to call you partner, partner. <laughs> yes, it's true. Uh, I am now part of Evil Beagle Games. I am the managing director of Evil Beagle Games. So it's kind of a big deal. Uh, but we will get into that more, um, probably towards the end of the podcast. So let's, uh, let's shift over to Chris Pramus. Chris, uh, what's your gaming character sheet look like? Well, I'm probably going to go with uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, uh, which I designed <laughs> the second edition of, which is basically the game where you know you start out as a schlub um, who is uh, certainly not a hero, and you hope to survive in a grim world of perilous adventure. So, um, <laughs> you know, that seems apt. I think my starting career was probably like student, you know, something like that. <laughs> and then uh, I guess I've probably gotten into an advanced career now. Um, some might say charlatan. I don't know. That's maybe <laughs> maybe that's unkind. <laughs> but you know, I picked up some skills. Beastmen haven't killed me. Um, <laughs> Game designer, I've, a grim world of drinking and shaming. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I would like to point out that Chris Pramus is our second guest at this point that has been on Will Wheaton's tabletop. Which, if I count you as the GM of the Dragon Age game, then technically we're undefeated. Gamers Tavern guests are undefeated on tabletop because you, you finished the game without Chris Hardwick derailing it too much. No yeah. table flips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I didn't even know about the whole uh, giving out a trophy angle of the show till it came on and I started watching it because, of course, <laughs> we didn't do that for an RPG session. Um, so that was yeah. uh, I was like, oh, yeah, that was a thing we didn't do. So, yeah, I did not lose. <laughs> I guess it would be hard to lose as the GM. <laughs> I, I could see if it, I could see if anywhere it happening, it would happen on Will's show. But you know, good luck. You yeah. know, good job that it didn't. Yeah, yeah. So, Chris, you are of course the uh, the head cheese over at uh, uh, your game company. Would you tell us about that? Uh, sure. I'm the founder and president of Green Renine Publishing. I started the company back in the year 2000 when I was still uh, working actually at Wizards of the Coast as uh, a role-playing game and then as a miniatures designer there. 
and I started the company sort of as a side project because I had started working on uh, on miniature stuff there, but felt like I want to kind of keep a finger in in the role playing pie, as it were. And then when the idea of the open game license and the the D twenty system and all that came around, I thought, oh well, that's something that I could do. You know, I could put out some some D and D adventures and uh, see how that goes. And it went well enough that by the time Wizards laid me off two years later. I just stepped into working in the company full-time. So since then, we've published a whole bunch of stuff. Our primary games right now are the Dragon Age RPG, which I designed, uh, Mutants and Masterminds, which is Steve Kenson's game, and A Song of Ice and Fire Roleplaying, which is the Game of Thrones RPG that Rob Schwab designed. And lately, we started doing some Pathfinder books as well. Uh, I've hired Owen Stevens to develop those because, man, he knows Pathfinder. He certainly does. Yeah. He knows it so much that Paizo hired him themselves. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> now, but he's, uh, he's still think, working for us, thankfully. Uh, Chris, mm-hmm. you also unlocked the achievement Ships Passing in the Night Yes. Uh, for <laughs> Ross Watson, uh, as a matter of fact. Because the two of us uh, have traded jobs at least one point. <laughs> yes, <laughs> at yep. Vigil Games when we were uh, you were working on Dark Millennium Online, the Warhammer 40k MMO, which uh, then you left to go back to Seattle, and I, I kind of came in at the same exact time. So yes, I think we kind of tag teamed that one. Yeah, I think I saw you once, and then yeah. I left. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of a quick high five, and then uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then tag I went you're on my in. way. Yeah. But hey, you got something out of Vigil that I did not, which was a shipped title because you got to work on Darksiders too. So, yes. Uh, yeah. Well, thankfully, at least something good came out of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I ate some good barbecue and made some friends. <laughs> That's pretty much what I got out of a year in Austin. Um, wow. But. Well, uh, so we've got, that pretty much establishes, I think, our gaming character sheets here. So uh, let's talk about what we've been playing lately. Daryl, why don't you start us out? What have you been playing lately? Well, I have been playing uh, Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, the starter set, using the basic D&D rules with uh, a couple of friends of mine, a former guest, uh, Andrea Perez, and a couple of people you guys might know. His name's uh, Ross Watson and Sean Patrick Fannin. Oh, those hacks. Good God. Couldn't you find anybody better? <laughs> But yeah, we've been running, uh, I uh, started running them through the starter set. We got through the first section of it in the first session, and that should be going up hopefully in a couple of weeks for you guys to listen to. The character generation probably should be going up not too long, either before or after this episode goes live. Yeah, that's right. Um, in that game, I'm playing, well, I'll get to that when I talk about what I've been playing lately, but it's, it's very cool. And I've also been trying to crack, um, Paizo had shipped me the Pathfinder Adventure card game to review for Any Cool News, and I've been trying to kind of grok that and see if I can wrangle anyone else to play, because it's it does have a solo player mode, but that just feels not right for some reason. Play it by yourself. But I'm trying to wrangle schedules so I can get people to play it with me. Okay. Chris, why don't you tell us what you've been playing lately? Uh, okay. For several years, um... I was running a, an AD&D campaign set in Greyhawk, which I started because uh, I've got a teenage stepdaughter, and I wanted her to sort of get a feel for what D&D used to be like back in the day. So that started just as a like a family game that I would run for uh, for Kate and Nicole, but then it sort of widened out into our regular Monday night group and actually turned into one of the, the funnest campaigns we had had in a while. So, a few, 
yeah, it was fun. It's fun. But a few months ago, I was like, you know, I'm getting a little tired of GMing. Maybe we could take a break. Somebody else could run something. And then we continued to meet, but it turned more into like drinking and having dinner and bullshitting. So a few months passed, and then I ended up starting a new D&D campaign using the, the new 5th edition rules. So we've played like three sessions of that so far. And then on Thursday nights, I go over to, to John Lighthouser, who's our Mutants and Masterminds developer, I go to his place, and we've been playing a Pathfinder adventure path called Way of the Wicked, which is the one where you're all lawful evil characters in the service of Asmodeus, uh, huh. trying to take over a good kingdom. Um, and, uh, and that's been pretty fun also. Um, and then, you know, I play lots of miniatures games and, and other stuff like that. Um, that which, is awesome. You know, we actually did a show not so long ago about evil parties. So I bet oh, that would, uh-huh. that's, that's pretty interesting stuff. And yeah. Oh, and I forgot to mention one other thing I've been working on. I've got a review coming up very soon of a book that has Chris's credit in it. Uh, the Emerald Spire from oh, yeah. Pathfinder. So. Yes. Uh, the, you uh, saying Lawful Evil reminded me of the amazing city that's in that game. Was that Frank's level? Frank Metzner? Uh, I believe so, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a guy who knows a thing or two about dungeons and adventuring. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, actually, at uh, at PaizoCon just a few weeks ago, um, Frank was the special guest. And uh, I've known Frank for a long time, but we never really had a chance to hang out. You know, I would like see him in passing. But we got to have a long conversation and then got to dinner with Eric Mona and some other folks. And uh, it's really nice. It was, it was cool to get a chance to hang out and hear some stories from uh, Frank's days at TSR and so on. That's awesome. Yeah, this Frank's days at TSR have also been featured in... Uh Recent articles have been making the rounds. <clears throat> I, I could only imagine how interesting those stories would be, considering he was there for the Night of the Long Knives and all the rest of that. <laughs> I read that article today. Okay, so, uh, Sean, why don't you tell us what you've been playing lately? Playing this hack jobs world called Shine Tar something <laughs> or other. I don't know. It's, uh, it's all right. <laughs> I've been living in that world because, of course, we're still very much involved in building up this uh, this living campaign thing that we're doing that's insane by everyone's standards, but it's working out pretty cool so far. And as a matter of fact, just this past weekend, uh, not even two weeks here in Denver, I'm at a convention called Conclave of Gamers, and we've got seven tables run, uh, a, game that, a convention that normally doesn't have any RPG, so I think we did okay. I <laughs> uh, got a lot of your potential players out of that, so I'm already looking at running at least two campaigns coming out of that convention because I've got rabid. God, please don't don't stop. We got we have a game, so I'm 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 very heartened by that. So yes, shine to our savage world. There's a lot of that going on. However, I am thrilled to see conversations going on about other games I'm going to get a chance to play here in the near future, including a certain Ross Watson's uh, superhero game using what fourth edition champions? Is well. Maybe. I mean, we're, we, let's not get too far down that rabbit hole because that's, we just barely started talking about that. I want, I want, I want so bad. But anyway, there's also, Ross is also interesting about a cool possible birthright campaign. So that's been also, you know, fifth edition driven, as a matter of fact. We've been having cool chats about that. I'm excited. I'm very excited about getting to play because I know you're paying, Chris. Hey, hey, can somebody else run something? So that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, uh. that's a thing that's been a problem for me. I mean, uh, I do have a chance developing also to play in Shine Fire thanks to Sean Gore. But there's also that D&D game that, that Daryl guy was talking about, which really opened my eyes to the fact that I may be rolling D20s again on a regular basis. Because thus far, now granted, it's just one session, first level, well, now second. 
I'm fairly impressed. The fact that they've incentivized role play with a cool mechanic. And not only have they done that, but they've incentivized in a way that you want to role play in combat, which I have never seen D&D do before. Just absolutely spectacular. And that plus the inclusivity uh, paragraph, I was already you know going to be supportive just because of that. But now uh, I see myself uh, enjoying uh, getting into some fifth edition games. So, yeah, um, uh, I'm going back to D&D, going back to D20, 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 you know. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to talk about what I've been playing lately. I've been playing uh, the D&D game, which uh, has been on all of our minds, I guess, tonight. Um, I'm playing, uh, I decided to resurrect Morgan Ironwolf from the old Metzner D&D game. Uh, she was one of the example fighters back in 1984, whenever that came out. I still have the uh, illustration by Jeff D. <laughs> nice. Uh, I, yeah. hate, I hate that woman. <laughs> Chris, do you remember Morgan Ironwolf? You know, I don't because uh, I started playing D&D in the 70s, actually. So oh, okay. by Fair the enough. time the basic stuff came out, I was like way beyond that. And I was like, I don't need that shit. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's for noobs. So, uh, yeah, it's weird. People have like huge nostalgia built up around the red box, but I didn't even buy the red box when it came out. So. All right, all right. So we will all get off your lawn. Yeah. Yes. Jovis <laughs> uh, does not care for Morgan at all, but unfortunately, we're stuck together. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been playing that, and I played in Sean's Shintar game at Conclave of Gamers, which was a lot of fun. Shintar is always uh, a really cool, good time, uh, epic high fantasy. The thing I really want to talk about, though, is this other game that Sean brought with him, uh, which is called Sentinels in the Multiverse. Oh yeah. Now, Good. Sentinels of the Multiverse is actually a card game, not an RPG, but you can totally role-play it, which is really, really fun, because um, I love to kind of role-play just about everything, you know, board game, card game, you name it. And uh, as a guy who kind of self-identifies as not really a card game guy, Sentinels is really, really, really fun. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it was like I told you, I, ever since I picked it up, we went nuts and got everything and uh, seven months later, it's pretty much the only non-RPG we've played, with very few exceptions, because it's just that compelling. Well, the the, the, the things I love about the, the Sentinels game, and I'm going to keep this, this short because it's not really a topic for the night, but um, hmm. the things I love about the Sentinels game is that the mechanics of each character can really come through in the in the gameplay, which is impressive to me. So Sentinels of the Multiverse, I think, is, uh, is pretty sweet, and I would definitely recommend anybody who has any interest in it at all to try and at least uh, try it out or demo it at some point, because it's, it's really neat. Just out of curiosity, Chris, have you played yet? Uh, I have not. We actually shared... Well, I mean, share. We were ne- we were next door neighbors. Our booths were at PAX a few years ago, so I met those guys and and we chatted a bunch over the weekend. But I have not ended up playing the game. Uh, the one night I thought we might at John's house, we ended up playing the, the DC Comics deck building game instead, which I turned out yeah. did not did not care for. Um, no, so, no, 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 no. <laughs> you made the wrong yeah. call. Well, all right. Let's uh let's move on to the next thing on our, our our topic list tonight, which is about the Tavern Tales. And in Tavern Tales, we're going to ask you guys to give us a uh, really interesting or entertaining story about a memorable die roll um, from one of your games. And uh, Chris, how about you go first? I bet you have a lot of really great memorable die rolls you can tell us about. <laughs> Um, well, you know, probably most of my memorable die rolls are me, you know, rolling terribly, which I have a reputation for. Hmm. Uh, my wife, Nicole, you know, she just laughs at me because I'll come back from, from playing miniatures games, uh, and I'll be like, well, I needed to roll anything but a one. 
and then I rolled a one, and that that's just sort of a like a recurrent theme, you know, in my my gaming life. Um, generally, it's uh, happened to anybody who plays Warhammer 40k. That's for sure. <laughs> yes, uh, any miniatures game, really, or well, probably game, really. But uh, I guess particularly memorable instance. Uh, I was in college, and. Um, we used to play Warhammer Fantasy Battle in the basement of my dorm, and we didn't have a table that was big enough, so we would tape out an, an 8 by 4 area just on the concrete, um, and then we would hunker over that for like six hours. <laughs> <laughs> we were wow. playing. So, uh, and we'd often start at midnight because I worked till like uh, 10 p.m. So we would like get our miniatures and meet in the basement at midnight to play Warhammer all night, which is the sort of thing you do in college, I guess. Anyway, we were playing. My friend Bill uh, was playing uh Britonia, who were like the chivalrous knightly faction. And, uh, and he had like three big units of elite cavalry. And all of them were sort of dangerously close to the edge of the board. Uh, and he had to make a morale roll. No! Uh, <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> after I defeated one of his units in combat. And he was good on a 10 or less on 2d6. And he rolled an 11, and the unit broke and ran off the table. And then the two nearby units had to take panic tests because you know their general and his unit had just run off the board and then he rolled like another 11 and a 12 so basically like two-thirds of his army just ran off the board and were out of the battle forever (laughs) Um, the pain the pain So, yeah, that, that was a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> That's a very good, memorable die roll. Thank you, Chris. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean, do you have a good, memorable die roll you can tell us about? I have a memorable series of horrible die rolls that happened just, oh, I don't know, uh, what, it was last week during a certain D&D 5th edition game. <laughs> 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 where we, we basically got the buddy cop thing going, the, the, the dour, you know, Trying to be straightforward, get get things done. Uh, <clears throat> elf, former Smith dude named Jovis, and this happy-go-lucky swashbuckling. Nothing ever goes wrong for her. Morgan, something or other, <laughs> and you know she's throwing axes at everything. And I'm like, get a proper weapon. And I'm like, firing the crossbow. And it's like she just knows somehow. So she like looks at me and says, "Go, you you go right ahead." Yeah, two, four, three. The the series of die rolls did nothing more than establish that I was the straight man and Morgan was the was the face and the star of that show. And so the dice determined my role, no matter what the hell I wanted to do. So there we are. You know, I could. I think that night I may have rolled four times over a ten. So, yeah, the virtual D20 hated me really bad that night. Now, like I said, that series of die rolls established the dynamic that I think is going to play through the rest of that campaign. So I'm Riggs and you're Murtaugh? That's exactly it. Um, All right. I'm getting too old for this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, on the plus side, your final roll of the night was pretty impressive, but I'm not going to spoil exactly what it was about. Oh, yeah. But good things are going to come of it. Yeah, it's it's a big roll. You should definitely listen to Game Table to find out what it was. Yep. Okay, so let's jump into tonight's topic, gaming rites of passage. I'm going to turn it over to our two guests. Um, can you guys tell us, what are you, what do you feel are probably the most important rites of passage as a tabletop gamer? Uh, are we talking strictly RPG or tabletop gaming in general? Well, probably tabletop gaming in general, With but you know, we're, we, we brought you guys on the show for a reason, because you know RPGs like few other people do. 
Uh, well, I would say, you know, uh, your first hobby game is an important rite of passage, you know, going from the sort of games that we all played as kids, you know, and then discovering sort of the world of hobby games. Uh, probably uh, your first game convention is a good rite of passage. Oh, yeah, big say. one, big um, one. I'd say your first set of dice. Yeah, mm. the, the first time you get a handful of dice and you're, you know, looking them over or the first time you even go to buy your own dice. Uh, that's a huge thing right there because as silly as it seems, it is a major, for a lot of people anyway, it's a major cultural kind of thing of I am choosing the talismans uh, of my future gaming experiences until I realize uh, I'm just going to buy all the dice and keep changing my mind. But at first, you're really particular about that first set of dice. I, I suppose on the negative side, there's the uh, the first person in your group who ruins the group and... <laughs> Oh. Your game goes down in flames. Everyone probably goes through that at some point. Um, yes, the, the first moment of table drama, absolutely. Oh. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the, the first person you encounter in the culture who you really just have no idea how to deal with them. There's there's a lot of interesting people, and, and the, the hobby does, fairly I think fairly spoken, draw uh, a wide variety of people and a very collective variety of people, and, and sometimes you end up with very interesting interactions with people completely outside of what you would have experienced up to that point in, in your social interactions. And because of the nature of what we do, we all gather at a place and we sit down to play a game. You're kind of going to be around that person for a while. So it's not like I have an initial, especially at conventions, right? For example, you sit down the first time at a table at a convention game, which by itself is a rite of passage. Uh, and you have that interaction with that person and you get to know them in a way you may have never gotten to know them otherwise and realize, hey, that's actually kind of a cool person. So you would say, you know, this all kind of ties into a big overarching theme. I, I would kind of want to term that theme being the discovery of gaming, right? The idea that, that it's not just Monopoly and Scrabble. It's there's there's more than than that out there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so these we were, so we were kind of going over some of the, these milestone first events, like your first, you know, uh, set of dice, you know, that kind of a thing. What would you say, for example, your first character death would be a really big Ooh, rite of passage? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember mine, so I guess so. I <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I never get over Macho Grande. I mean, sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> It actually wasn't the death of my character that upset me. Um, it was the it was the way that the rest of the players um, treated my corpse. Was that <laughs> 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 so we yeah you know, we were playing AD and D of course because it was you know 1980 or whatever and we had had characters die before and sort of the standard operating procedure because we were I don't know 12th level or something like that was that if someone died we would take their bodies back and get them resurrected because it's D&D, you know. So uh, I had this ranger character who finally bit it, and I was like, okay. And, you know, I was uh, 10 or 11 years old, and everyone else in the group were my brother's friends who were three years older than me, and thus, I think, you know, were super excited to be playing with someone <laughs> who was their social inferior. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> they... So, like... My character got killed. I didn't get upset. And then we, they left my corpse at the bottom of a tree while they went up into a tree house. And then, you know, when they woke up in the morning, my corpse was gone. And oh well, roll up a new character. And <laughs> that's when I got upset. I was wow. like, 
you are assholes. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's not just though, you know, um, the exploration of it. Well, it is. I mean, it's it's really about the exploration of something outside of your your normal experience. That that's what that first role playing moment is really like. Um. Do you think that that you could probably boil that down into that first, you know, holy crap, this is awesome moment when you know you suddenly have that realization that your 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 character does meaningful things? Uh, I definitely the epiphany of what's actually possible yes, again that. is is for me I think an important rite of passage for everyone, and not all of them get that as far as I'm concerned. Some some you know some never get to to see that as far as because and granted it's a, a bias alert I. Great. I fully admit that those who tend to play more tactical, the character has a name and they have a picture, but that's about as far as the emotional investment for some players is concerned because mostly it's just about what's on the sheet and what they're killing and what they're taking. And I'm not disregarding that as a viable way of play. Your style is your style, and if you and your group love that, it's all you. But to me, uh, bearing in mind that I came in from a weird perspective, but I've seen this transpire amongst other people over the years, and I've loved watching it happen. I've loved helping make it happen for people, which is to say, I my first entry into the gaming uh, hobby was in 1977. No one in Cobb County that I knew of was playing at the time, Cobb County, Georgia. I mean, there were a couple, but not many. Um, and I picked up a games magazine, and this one writer had an experience where they actually wrote about their own epiphany just in that one game, which was, okay, we're walking around these dungeons and the guy's describing all this stuff. Well, I don't know if anybody else at the table is getting what I'm getting out of this at the time, but for me, it was this immersion into the story in the sense that I'm actually getting to be somebody other than who I am. And that epiphany, that moment of, of translation into another space in which I'm getting to pretend to be somebody and have an impact on, on at least this small, tiny piece of the world. The concept of that is so divinely different from any other game experience uh, that it was a hugely transformative thing for me and I brought that to the table as I basically taught myself to, to be a DM and then later as I prefer to call GM but watching people see that potential when they sit down at a table and they may have sort of gotten it before but then if you're running with them and they suddenly go wow you mean I really get to just talk and be this character and you care about what my story is I love watching that. I love watching that transformation because that is a that's what RPGs specifically bring and and LARP. Okay, fair enough to say LARP too. What do you think, Chris? Is that right? Do you, you think he's on the right track? Uh, well, I mean, what excited me about role playing games was essentially the idea that um, you know that I could have adventures myself that were like the fantasy fiction that I was reading. Right? I was a I was a big reader. Uh, from when I was very young and I, I loved fantasy and, and sci-fi. And so, you know, basically what D&D was to me was like the game of the books that I love, you know, mm -hmm. except now I can make my own characters and, and have these adventures. And, you know, that that was the like, you know, oh, this game is totally for me <laughs> moment of understanding, you know. Um, so, yeah, yes. it's life changing for me between Star Wars and Dungeons and Dragons. Everything changed in 1977. Well, I've got this moment I remember when I first was playing D&D. &D, that was just my epiphany. We were basically just doing that meeting someone in a tavern, you know, thing that you did, especially especially in the early days of D&D. &D, that was very, very common. And um, it was my very first ever game of D&D. &D, and uh, I, I turned to the guy that was I was playing with, you know, one of the other players. And I said, do you think we can trust these guys? And the GM had the characters in the tavern react 
to my question. And I had no inkling that, you know, this, this was, at the time, I had no idea of, you know, the difference between in-character, out-of-character, because it was actually an in-character statement, but it was the first time I'd been held accountable for that, right? It was the first time that my Cowboys and Indians, you know, understanding of role-playing games uh, became something that was interactive, really interactive. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, holy shit, they're actually listening to us talk, right? Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not Ross talking to his buddy Bill, Right, I'm actually my character in the tavern talking, and that was that was my epiphany, which I yeah. thought was really cool. Yeah. You're inside the fourth wall at that point. So, when I was uh, when I was in college, I was running um, an Ars Magica game, and the players uh, their um, their magi were negotiating with this other uh, magi magus. And, you know, in my mind as the GM, I was like, yeah, there's no way this guy's going to make a deal, you know. But one of the players, like came up with something that was really clever and I started to say no and then I paused myself to think about it and go oh no wait a minute he would totally take that deal you know so and the players could see it happening and you know and after the session they were like we could tell you know that you were actually swayed by by what the player came up with and that was awesome and uh so yeah that was a, a fine moment of uh of role playing this I guess Derek do uh, Daryl do you have a uh, an epiphany moment <laughs> Doing this for nine months and you get my name wrong. Seriously. And you're never going to let me forget it, right? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Goes into the book. But, <laughs> but uh, I, my introduction to role-playing was a little bit unconventional by most standards because I came in the most bass-ackwards way you could think of. Uh, I did. I was not allowed to play D&D because, er, devil worship, perp, perp, perp. And uh, I actually came through it... And this was my kind of epiphany moment because I had played before, but it wasn't real role playing. If you want to hear more about that, uh, go back to episode zero where I talk about my first experience playing Shadowrun and Battletech where we didn't bother, you know, rolling dice or anything. We just told each other what we were doing. But my first moment was actually through, again, the most backward ass way you could do it. Hero Quest. If you guys remember that old, uh, Milton Bradley come games workshop yeah, uh, sure. board game yeah. that came out. Well, what happened was I had bought the game and we were playing it straight through when I was running the game and I was kind of not knowing what I was doing, barely knew the rules and fumbling around a lot. And one of the other guys who played D&D said, okay, let me try running it. And there wasn't a specific moment, but it was just the fact that we started playing at four in the afternoon and didn't stop until 8 a.m. the next morning. <laughs> just going through and he was making all this stuff up off the top of his head and it was, and when we started, you know, adding on and breaking the rules that they had written in the thing and creating so much more than was just in that little booklet and understanding that the world can be so much bigger than just what the rules specifically say. And it was just that whole experience, that whole night of experience of just playing around and finding new things to do and breaking out of the molds of what I was used to monopoly. This is what the rules of monopoly are. You can't do anything that's not in these rules. And we, blew right past that and it was a lot of fun and I still remember that to my to this day. Now Daryl, you make a really great point uh about something I was just about to bring up. I want to ask Chris and Sean about this. Do you th- do you guys feel that one of the big rites of passage is the first time you run a game as opposed to being a player? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. god. Certainly. Yeah. It would have to be. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for me, uh that started out right away. <laughs> I didn't have anybody else <laughs> To run, they were like, "Well, what's this game?" Well, okay, so I mean, like I said, I, I I come at it from a very unusual perspective, but somebody had to start, right? Um, so for me, it was kind of reverse. My first rite of passage was as a player, 
and 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 sort of as a, a sub right or a you know, lower level right or sub cockle right or whatever. There's the whole uh, when you go from being the guy behind the screen for a long while and you transition either for the first time, as was my case, or back into the role of player. Uh, that's also uh, uh, sometimes complicated because you're used to having a lot more authority to say, no, no, wait, you're not supposed to do that that way. And you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to shut up and let the guy run the game. So that was an interesting thing. But yeah, I would say absolutely it's such a huge step up for most players to go from I've got this character to worry about to suddenly everybody's expecting me to know everything about the world. Uh, it's a hell of a thing. What do you think, Chris? Well, yeah, I mean, there's some people who, who just never – do it either. I mean, you know, there's, there's people who just, they just play. They, they're not comfortable, you know, with the idea of running. And, you know, it, it's, there's certainly, there's a sense in which you become responsible for other people's fun. You know, also running a game can be really fun. And, you know, the, the sort of creativity that you get to, to put into that. But, you know, it does take uh, a little bit of courage to decide that you're going to give it a go when you've never done it before. And hopefully you have good friends, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and uh, and they work with you. Yeah, but yeah. it's definitely an achievement unlocked, right? I mean, oh yeah, yeah. I would I would never do your first uh, time running as a convention game. That's for damn sure. No, no, uh, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Honestly, you know, it's weird. I can't remember what the first thing I ever ran was. I mean, it would have been AD and D because that's what I was playing at the time. But I don't remember if it was something I made up or okay. you know one of the old um, adventures. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Doing the wayback machine tonight. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, uh, so running the game, you know, transitioning from being a player to a GM—that's a big deal. But one other one I think is important to talk about: the first time you have a major screw up in a role-playing game. I think that's also a big rite of passage. Uh, like you personally or when you're running a game? Well, I think you could go either way. I mean, I certainly uh-huh. remember um, making horrible mistakes as a, as a as a GM, but um, even more so as a player, you know, it, and it kind of comes back to that whole, like, meaningful choice yeah. thing, right? And the first time you make a meaningful choice, that becomes a epic fail. Hmm. Do, you think, do you think that's right or wrong? I was just thinking, I, I still remember mine. We were playing uh, second edition D&D, and they had they blah blah. I can't remember what the setup was, but there was a hydra inside a thing, and everyone was all eight of the other players were going in, and my guy is, and I'm thinking of my character in character, thinking of his backstory and everything else. I'm like, there's no way my guy's gonna risk his life for some stupid blah blah. He's gonna stay out here and watch the stuff, and so I sat outside while everyone else played for an hour fighting the hydra, and was bored off my ass. <laughs> And I didn't get any experience. <laughs> that happened to me in a Gen Con Champions game, like circa 1990 or something like that, where I decided to be a little tactical and I was going to like watch the outside while the rest of the group went inside in case it was a trap. And, you know, Champions has a combat system where things happen <laughs> extremely slowly. And so even though, you know, in the, in the real world, getting inside once things started happening would take like 30 seconds or a minute, maybe in Champions time, that was a long time of not doing anything. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, whoops. Yeah, I've I've certainly had a few of those kinds of experiences. Um, I'm trying to think. 
not able to put my finger on a specific example, but I do know the the first time where I recognized that I had completely let a player down as a GM. They had gone all out to do something really cool and special, and they had put all that time and thought into it. And and in their mind, you know, it was obvious that uh, there was a need to be a payoff, and I completely skipped it or skimmed it. Um, I'll never forget the first time I had a player cry on me because of that. Uh, I'm not going to get into any details because I don't want to embarrass anyone, but I will just say I, I, <laughs> I, 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 there is one specific instance I'm thinking of where I still feel horrible about it to this day. And I went, oh, God, did I go out of my way to make up for it later? But there was still that missed opportunity, right? That, that glorious moment of story that they had been waiting for and were building up to, and I didn't deliver. Well, the and, point is, I think, you know, talking about it as a rite of passage, it's, it's something you learn from. Oh yeah. yeah, it's 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 the instructional error, and that, that but, was very instructional. I I'm much much more oriented on making sure I don't miss those chances if I can help it. Yeah, one of the lessons that I learned was like uh, when you're running was to know your audience um, because. You know, I was one of these people who was always buying new role-playing games and wanted to try them out and so on. And a lot of times, you know, my groups, like, they just weren't as adventurous, you know, as they didn't want to learn new game systems all the time or, you know, they didn't have the right sort of frame of mind and whatever. So uh, I've tried to run Pendragon, which is one of my favorite games still, uh, when I was in college. You know, if you're going to play Pendragon, it requires, like, a, at least a little bit of seriousness, you know? Like, it is, it is not a comedy game. And, it, you know, you want your players to get a little invested, at least, and and into the role of uh, of knighthood and, and all that. And, uh, and it just totally went bad, because no one was... They just weren't buying into the very premise of the game, you know? And they, they made characters, and my friend Chris decided when he had to come up with a coat of arms, that his coat of arms was a big G and his character was Sir Guy of Green Bay. Um, and, Aww, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> so yeah, that's all about the, the whole tone and expectations yep. part of the uh, yep. <laughs> the GMing. That's, that's part of the GMing experience though too, right? It is. Uh, so yeah, yeah screw ups. I mean, I, I wrote a whole blog post about um, this time that I failed in a birthright game and, and it was... It was the kind of failure that I mean, I actually like feel lingering guilt over something my character has done, um, where I had been sent on a diplomatic mission to get um, the elves to come in on our side in a big war, and uh, I was met with you know the sort of typical elven arrogance, and I was trying to break through, and the the, the uh, approach I took to try and break through was kind of to try and shock them, you know, into realizing exactly what was at stake, but that, that, that actually backfired pretty badly. So, um, like <laughs> I, you know, I, I wrote about my character standing on the castle parapet, looking out over the other side of the river, which was basically on fire from all the raiding elves who had gone out and torched all the freaking you know, villages over there because I had pissed them off so badly on my diplomatic mission. And I was like, Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> consequences. Yeah. Consequences. And, and you know, it was a, to me, that's a, that's a rite of passage. So, you know, maybe we should talk about another rite of passage, although let's not, I, I don't want to correlate this with anyone, in anyone's mind with the idea of a screw up or anything like that, but what about your first edition change? When your game changes editions? Oh, this old chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, well, uh, for me, the first time, oh, the first time, uh, it was exciting, I have to admit. Uh, it was like, ooh, new possibilities, right? We've been playing this rule system for a while. Um, you know, of course, there was a complete failure to, you know, to, to acknowledge the value of money and therefore look back at the money spent versus the money you're now going to spend. Uh, but back then, a new edition was pretty much a book uh, when I was first experiencing that kind of thing. Um, but then, of course, over time, it's like, oh, God, I've got to spend all this money again. I don't know. If, you, if you've been messing with and house ruling a system for long enough, uh, it's hard not to be at least interested in, in what they're going to do next. Yeah, I mean, overall, like my early experiences with edition changes were positive. Like, you know, when when the, they were announced, I was like, oh, cool. Like, I can't wait to see what they come up with. And, you know, maybe they'll fix some of these niggly things that have been bothering us and so on. Um, so, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I'm certain that, that for some people, these things were contentious in the 80s, but they weren't for me. So it seemed like that got much worse later but that could just be the internet amplifying things as well so well i think i think going through an edition change though does mark you as a gamer and does give you some perspective that someone who has only played one edition you know might not necessarily have that's yeah. why i brought it up as a as a oh, yeah. passage no no you're absolutely right and it it, it is a, a marked point what what it most represents is that you've now been at this a while Right, you've been playing that particular game. You have like a milestone, yeah, yeah. Right, you've had you've had investiture in that game, or maybe you've walked away from that game. Like certainly is my case with D and D. You know, I walked away after a while with just struggling through three five and just not really enjoying it anymore. Not that I considered a bad game, but it just got to a point where it wasn't particularly fun for me. And then I took a little sniff at, at uh, fourth, and it just was not going to wash for me at all. And I definitely fell on the side of the this was not a good choice uh, for the most part. Uh, and now I'm coming back with a so this you know so each edition change actually marks its own you know moment. But certainly I can look back and go, holy crap! I've been through five editions. Am I old or what? <laughs> uh, it also depends on the nature of the changes. Like in some games, you know, like Call of Cthulhu went through six editions with really not all that many changes. You know, I mean, you could take a stat block from first edition Call of Cthulhu and sixth edition and they're you know, pretty similar, you know. But, you know, other games, uh, sometimes they will like throw out the entire system and be like, we're starting again. And that is a much bigger sea change for people to deal with. Um, well, Sean brought up an interesting point, too, uh, that I want to address really quick, and that's the idea of burnout. I, I would say burning out is also a rite of passage, although certainly not a positive one. Yeah. Uh, one yeah. time where it's just like, I've been doing this too long. I just can't come up with anything this week, guys. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, well, I've had, I, for me, the, 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 it's the campaign burnout, right? I'm not enjoying running this campaign anymore. Uh, and, and that's, Campaigns are such a, a commitment, right? They, 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 and by necessity, they should be. So all these people who are involved in this thing are really invested. They've built a character. They've invested emotion into the story of the character. Uh, and when a player burns out, it's it's one thing, and it's not a good thing. And of course, they experience that kind of sense of, well, I'm just, I, I don't want to play this anymore. It's not fun. So they're walking away from a regular social occur occurrence and what have you. Or maybe they just want to switch characters. But when a GM burns out, 
it really is a major thing for everybody involved, and it's a big source of, of potential disappointment and a real disappointment, I should say. It's not really potential. It's, it uses, unless nobody's enjoying it, and everybody's like, "Oh, thank God, that's over." But you know, <laughs> you know it's uh, yeah. it is that is that, that that moment where you realize it's just not working for you anymore, and you tend to use the word hiatus, but more often than not, you really don't mean it. I. I want to apologize to Chris. I think I, I jumped in there on top of him there. Uh, did you have something more you wanted to say about addition changes or burning out? Well, on burnout, um, I, like I burned out on playing particular games, but never gaming. So, um, you know, like the, I've never been like, I'm just not going to game for six months or whatever. That That's never happened to me. But I have certainly been like, man, I'm sick of this game. <laughs> Let's play something else. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Been there as well. Yeah, but that's really where um, you know TSR kind of flourished for a while because they were public. You know, they had you know. Well, if you're tired of D and D, now you can play Ravenloft. If you're tired of Ravenloft, you can play Spelljammer. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Although that led to some other problems for them. But oh, absolutely. <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to take a little bit of a break from the show real quick so I can tell you about one of our sponsors, Audible. Now. I'm about to, literally, we just got done recording for our episode that's going to be airing in about two weeks, so I am literally brain fried right now. It's 11 p.m. I have gotten little sleep this week working on getting everything up for this week and for Gen Con, and I'm getting on a plane in two days. What's the last thing I want to do when I'm on a plane? I don't want to worry about fumbling through a book, losing my place. I don't want to hear that baby screaming three seats behind me. I want to listen to something good. So I'm going to Audible and I'm getting a book. I'm actually getting the new Dresden Files book, as a matter of fact. Uh, so I can listen to that read by James Marsters, of course. Uh, but if Dresden Files isn't your thing, which I don't know why that would be the case because Dresden Files are awesome, but they've got one of the largest selections on the internet of audiobooks. Uh, they've got all the Sundering books from Forgotten Realms. They've got the Terry Pratchett books. I just noticed that on their website of uh, Snuff and uh, Nightwatch and all those. Uh, speaking of Nightwatch, they've got the A Song of Ice and Fire series if you want to catch up and uh, basically if you want to get around all those people on your Facebook feed that keep trying to spoil it for you. Th- this is perfect for you. Get those books, listen to them. I know you got time to listen if you're listening to us. So, what we're going to do to help you out and introduce you to Audible is we're going to give you a free book. Just go to audibletrial.com slash gamers tavern and you can start your 30 day free trial right now of Audible and get one book for free. Now that's audibletrial.com slash gamers tavern. 30 days, cancel it anytime, keep the book. It's yours. Listen to it as many times as you want. Don't worry about it. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got dramatizations. They've got radio shows. We've got the radio plays from Doctor Who for crying out loud. Seriously, go to audibletrial.com slash gamers tavern. You're going to love it. I promise. And with that said, back to the show. And we're back with episode 39 of the gamers tavern. We're talking to Chris Pramus and Sean Patrick Fannin about gaming rites of passage. Uh, we've talked about edition changes and screwing up and running games, character death. What about a rite of passage that deals with other players. And I think we've actually even mentioned it already. There's that guy, quote unquote, that you meet in your gaming group. I mean, yeah. isn't that's also a rite of passage, isn't it? Well, you certainly, you learn to be um, a little choosier in who you invite <laughs> into your group. Because <laughs> when you first start gaming, you know, it's sort of like, this is great. If, oh, you want to play? Great. You know, um, and then... 
sometimes you discover that people just aren't a good fit for your group. And, and then it's socially awkward then to be like, yeah, you know, we decided you're not really a great fit for our group. Like there's just, it's hard to do that without feeling like, you know, well, making people feel bad. Right. And no one likes to do that. Well, yeah, that brings up the other other rite of passage, which is the, you know, the, uh, not so white lie of, Oh, we're not playing this weekend. Or, you know, uh, we, we, yeah, we just decided to let that campaign go. No, not really. And then there's also the crazy, the transition where you finally reach the point where you feel like an adult enough to actually say up front, this isn't working out and you can't play. I mean, those are both big transitions as a gamer, especially as a GM. They're huge yeah. ones. Well, particularly where a lot of people, you know, start playing when they're teenagers, you know, it's not like you're super mature to begin with <laughs> if you're 13 or 14 years old. So, Excellent point. That's a yeah. very, very good point. You know, so then all of a sudden there's like this this layer of awkwardness, you know, that you have to deal with and, and you're not even grown up yet. So, um, yeah. It can be then There's those times where you might realize that you were that guy. Yeah. I had, yeah. I had that one happen to me a couple of times. Yeah, that happened to me when I was in the military and I was doing a lot of gaming and I I had some some incidents occur and I I looked back and I was like, "Oh my god. I am that guy." <laughs> <laughs> or I was that guy at that time. Yeah. Oh, that was a huge moment for me when I realized I was being the arrogant know-it-all. You guys should respect my authority player at the table with a bunch of people who knew my name but didn't know, because I started publishing at this point, but they didn't know who the hell I was, and I was sure as hell throwing a lot of weight around. I had no business, and realizing I was doing that was a, oh, God, that hurt so bad. That was <laughs> such a, that was such a, oh, Fannin, what the hell are you doing? I mean, it would be more of a professional designer writer passage than a gamer writer passage. I don't know. But realizing you're that guy sucks no matter what. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so... I think another uh, big thing for me, certainly as a, as a rite of passage, is, is the first time that you realize that you're basically speaking an entirely different language. And you're not just be I mean, you're fluent in that language, right? You can say things like Thaco, AC, the gazebo, <laughs> Tucker's kobolds, and people understand what you mean. I remember the, the moment where my mother's looking at me wondering what the hell I am talking about. <laughs> 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 and starting to worry a little bit. <laughs> What's your dex? How high is your con? Yeah. Yeah. Or or interpreting the world in terms of those those numbers. It's something I intellectually knew that we all kind of speak our own language as gamers, where we learn all these different terms that mean specific things, but it was the first time it actually really hit home that it does it whenever we were playing our fifth edition game. Uh, we have someone who's never played a role-playing game before, Andrea, and we were, and I was just rattling off because it's, again, back of my brain, second language. I said, okay, you're trying to do a dex check. The DC is 14. And she goes, what does DC mean? I'm like, oh, crap. I never explained what that meant. Yeah. <laughs> just that moment where I'm really, oh, I forgot. I'm speaking a foreign language right now. I have to remember to translate. Save for half. Half of what? (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of like any discipline, right? I mean, you know, people develop specialized language, you know, for all sorts of things in academia and and beyond. And so it's ours. Um, And it's funny because I remember first reading D&D and reading about the idea of the thieves can't and trying to figure out 
Like, what, what did that mean, really? You know, and people would sometimes explain to me, well, it's not really, it's not a separate language per se, but, you know, it's a way of talking or you can communicate things. And it's like, huh. And then you think about gamer lingo and you're like, <laughs> oh, that's basically thieves can't is, you know, it's like we could talk in front of other people and have, they have no idea what we're talking about. We're speaking English, but it makes no sense to them at all. And that's essentially, you know, it's gamer can't is, is what it is. Oh my God. Well, now I, my next champions character is going to have to spend like, one point to pick up the gamer lingo dialect for English. Because <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, you know, legalese is also one I often buy for yeah. uh, champions characters. Yeah. The party, the first part, wherefore the party, the second part, in accordance with. <laughs> yeah. And now we get to have an argument about whether or not that, that's professional, you know, professional oh, law or you Stop. have that kind of a language. Stop. <laughs> I'm going to smack you. <laughs> the only time I played Shadowrun in the last, like, 20 years, I played a troll lawyer. So. Oh, that's a great <laughs> character concept right Yeah, there. it was pretty fun, actually. Yeah. I'm here to protect you. <laughs> Send See, trolls, guns, and money. That's right. I'm going to file an amicus brief and shoot you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and there are certain games, right? There are even certain games like Shadowrun that have their own special lingo. Um, you can almost tell someone apart, you know, in, you, you, well, it's like, you know, really subdividing. We're getting to nitty gritty here, but you can actually tell someone's, uh, you know, a Shadowrun gamer by them using sp- certain specific terms for that game, or if they're it's a game, Warhammer gamer, uh, et cetera. Yep. Or if Ooh. they've hung out on the Forge, you can certainly tell. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Are they are they talking about brain damage? <laughs> I just I just realized that there's yet another major rite of passage, not one I would wish on anybody, but it is a rite of passage, and that's your first game argument. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Your first, usually, you know, you know there, there's the no, first. No, you are wrong, sir. You yeah, are wrong. I, okay. <laughs> the first <laughs> argument you have of a rule, all right, the first time you and a GM or another player or a whole table full gets into a massive blowout over a rule interpretation. Yeah, that's a, that's a major moment that's usually very, very, it, it, it's painful. And, and it, it usually will test the metal of any gaming group. If a gaming group survives their first major uh, rules argument blowout, then you've got a good group, uh, at least early on. Uh, I, these days, I judge a group by the fact that they never have one. That's a good group. <laughs> no, that's a really good point. Uh, Chris, is that something you've also experienced? Oh, sure. I, uh, it's one of the, the classic, uh, rules arguments in one of my old groups was, uh, it was in the early days of the collectible card game phenomena. And like when Magic had first come around, I thought it was like a fun thing to play before role playing. Um, cause, you know, people would show up. There'd only be a couple of you at first. So you could play a game of magic, whatever. Well, then Wizards put out Jihad, which they later renamed Vampire the Eternal Struggle. And mm-hmm. we started playing that. And those games took like three or four hours. So all of a sudden that was what we were doing for a whole night. And, and not role-playing. So we were engaged in a game of that. We had been going on for many hours. People were testy. And this <laughs> rules argument erupted. People were arguing back and forth. It got very heated. And my one friend had been drinking this, uh, you know, carton of orange juice. And he was gripping it in his hand and he was holding it tighter and tighter. And finally, <laughs> he's like, oh, so now I'm the asshole, huh? And he throws the <laughs> orange juice carton, what he thinks is going to be at the wall. But what it actually does is hit 
uh, my friend Todd right in the head. And oh, Todd no. was uninvolved in this argument. He was just sitting there quietly, and all of a sudden, he got an orange juice carton in the head. And we were like, actually, now you are the asshole. <laughs> wow. You just threw an orange juice carton at this guy's head. Collateral damage. <laughs> Oh my God! See now, of course, I'm imagining the, the the basically the effectiveness of a bar fight, but I'm assuming it didn't devolve quite that far. No, no, no. <laughs> basically, we had one one guy in our group who, like, he just wasn't cut out for collectible card games because he could not read the rules text of those cards, um, the way that they were written. You know, he would always come up with his own bizarre interpretation. Um, and we started having to chant at him, read the card, because he'd be like, I can do this. And then we'd look at the card and go, no, you can't. You can actually do this other thing. And, you know, it just, I don't know, the whole rules exception design thing just didn't work well for his brain, I guess. I remember I was playing in a fantasy hero game and I had an ability where uh, any hand weapon, you know, that I, I wielded did extra damage. And I was trying to, I was just trying to clarify with the GM before we even started the game that this would also apply to me throwing daggers because I felt that a dagger was, you know, a hand weapon that I would then get a bonus on even if I was using it to attack at range. Because there was a whole separate power for doing extra damage with ranged weapons. Well, GM didn't see it that way. And, you know, rather than just saying, okay, that's fine, it's your game, Oh, we took it into a much more longer, more acrimonious discussion. <laughs> and I remember like going, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm this upset over something. So, you know, it was that kind of like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Everybody calm down. <laughs> you know, it was that realization of just how kind of petty that was. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, absolutely. That is, that is also a, a, a rite of passage, a, a somewhat unpleasant one, but um, certainly a rite of passage. And while I'm introducing unpleasant subjects as rite of passages, here's my <laughs> oh, other <God>. one. <laughs> the first time a group encounters uh, an in-character emotional breakdown that cannot help but spill out into real emotions. Uh, usually fomented mm. by the secret backstab, the, the total betrayal, the... Yeah, but my character would do that, and you know the other characters. Why did you? You know, why are my bowels on the floor now? I don't understand. You know, why am I rolling? You know, save versus death checks because of you, or or whatever it is. You know, that that moment where two characters get into it, and and they're both convinced that it was perfectly the right thing to do, but it's absolutely the wrong thing for the campaign, and the whole thing just goes kablooey. I remember my one of those. Uh, I was uh, playing at the game store, and we were actually running two characters apiece because he wanted to run big monsters, but he still wanted us at first level because our, we had a killer DM that ran this that owned the store. Uh, so our like fourteen first level characters ran into a beholder. Wow, Jesus! So in, in, in like this little clearing of a cave that had bent around, so that only half the people there had room to see there was a beholder oh, there, no. and my fighter was dead in the middle of the bend. He gets hit by the dominate ray, turns around and smacks the guy behind him with his sword. So the guy there logically determines, based on the events, oh, this guy must be turning on me and attacks me back. And I had my wizard in the back of the thing said, oh, no, you don't, and start attacking him. And it became a thing. <laughs> We're going to kill ourselves before the Beholder gets us. That's our revenge. <laughs> that is pretty much almost what happened, yes. We barely, I think we, I think we lost three people, one of which at least was to friendly fire. Okay. 
I, I would like to point out for listeners who maybe don't have a huge amount of experience with role-playing games, um, they are actually really fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun activity you could do with your friends and, and have a good time. Um, it only occasionally is there drama and, you know, things like this going wrong. But, yeah. you know, don't get the wrong idea about role-playing games. I guess okay. that's what I'm saying. To be fair, <laughs> I started in 1977. It's, it's 2014. It's what I do for a living. It's what I do every weekend I can. So that should tell you something right there. These are instances that happen, as, as Ross calls it, rites of passage. But, you know, take them as uh, maybe fair warning that you should, you know, try to talk things out before they, such situations blow up. Because the thing is, it is such an emotionally involving experience. That's what makes it magical, right? You know, you can get emotionally invested in a, in a Monopoly game, but I don't know why. <laughs> but for role playing, you're supposed to get emotionally invested to some degree. So yeah, maybe those emotions get real for you, just like they would get for an actor who really throws themselves into a role. That's cool. That's awesome. And it's just as you, we were younger, we ran into these problems where we didn't really know how to manage those as well as we do now. So cautionary tales, if you will, but at the same time, just kind of cool things that happen as you learn about the hobby. Well, let's um, you know, let's build on that a little bit. Let's uh. Let's talk about, as a rite of passage, your first grand triumph, because I think that's also important. You know, the story you could tell other gamers to say, no shit, there I was in front of Orcus. <laughs> you know? I was actually behind the screen when I had mine. Uh, I had run a campaign at the local store. It was the first third edition campaign. It had been running for, at this point for, I think, like three months. and had been building up and building up for, for the final confrontation. The big, bad, evil guy... Uh, he's trying to open a portal to the, some other, I can't remember what, I want to say it was the abyss that would lead the abyss directly into the land so that it was direct connection and all the bad things come in and they were trying to stop him from opening this portal, uh, to just keep him from destroying the world. And he had a good motivation for destroying the world too. But, uh, and it was, it came down to, they kept knocking him down and knocking him down and knocking down hit points and finally they got him to the point where, uh, they had been collecting weapons to try to stop him, and he was half elf, half dragon. So the first one that comes up is the one fighter comes up and hits him with the longsword Kinslayer, which is an elf bane weapon, and critical hit. Nice. He's down to like three hit points. The next one, in turn, is the fighter wielding the great sword, or the barbarian wielding the great sword, called Dragon Slayer, which is a <laughs> dragon bane weapon. Critical hit. So they stopped the evil with critical hits, barely surviving, and managed to keep the ritual from continuing to open the portal and save the world. That's pretty badass. My NPC that I built up, and I love this NPC, and I brought him back again. He died, but that's his point. He's the villain. They were supposed to kill him. And even if I wasn't the one that saved the world, it felt like I was a part of it. Because that was just so awesome. That It was the perfect moment, perfect timing, perfect two people, got the perfect two hits right at the end. Yep. Yep. So for you, it was about providing that perfect experience to your group. That and just the random chance that came up that it was those two guys back-to-back in initiative order that took them out. Well, right. So that was all. That was It was that, the random chance, and everything just fell into place perfectly for that final battle. I think there's... there's uh... Something to be said also for, for really having a campaign that reaches finality. Like so often in role playing games, you start a campaign, you know, 
with that idea that you're going to play for, you know, a year or maybe years. And six months later, you know, things fizzle out and then you play something else and so on. But I remember in uh, college, we were playing uh, the Warhammer fantasy roleplay Enemy, Enemy Within campaign. And we were playing it as the books were coming out. And so we were, you know, we would finish one and then sort of wait and the next one would come out. But, you know, over the course of several years, we played through the entire campaign plus, you know, extra stuff. So it was a real feeling of accomplishment when we finished the, the final adventure uh, of five, um, you know, after all the stuff that we had done and, and accomplished, it actually had a satisfying end to a campaign instead of it just kind of fizzling, you know? No, that's a really great point, Chris. I think that's something mm-hmm. I hear an awful lot from experienced gamers is that that's the thing that they they think back on the most is like, wow, I wish I'd have been able to finish that campaign or I wish mm-hmm. I had some closure for this character that I loved or I wish I'd been able to, you know, achieve the goal that I set out to do with this particular game. So getting that that finality, as you say, I think that is a really great rite of passage, absolutely. And that was actually, you stole my thing, Chris. Nice job. <laughs> I don't want your thing, Sean. Rage, rage flip. I'm going to totally rage flip. We're going to have a total knockdown right now. Not really. I'm just too tired. But anyway, the first time that I brought a campaign to a conclusion and I had the whole table of people stand up I mean, I'm not kidding. Stand up and give me a standing ovation. And there were people crying, and I was crying. And it was a, I'm, I'm choking up thinking about it now, as a matter of fact, because <laughs> it was that profound. I mean, you're right. For, for all, we were like, oh, all these crappy things that, you know, uh-uh, nothing can touch that. That beauty, that moment where we all told a story together. And, I mean, it, like you said, Daryl, that sense that you facilitated that incredible moment. You weren't the opponent. You were the one who made it possible for them to immerse themselves in that moment and have that victory. Thus, it was your victory, too. It was the same thing for me. Uh, and and to, to have all these people go, oh, my God, that was such a great event. And you know, I've, I've had that amazing experience. This is like the, it's the drug. It's why I keep doing this. It's why I keep writing games. It's why I keep producing stuff. It's also why I keep going to conventions and exhausting myself running them. Like this just this past weekend, everybody was so excited at the end of the thing we did just this past weekend at Conclave. Once again, an emotional rush and an emotional sense of well-being from that sense that everybody else had a grand adventure and they all look and say, you gave us that gift. And then they give me the gift back of, of what they did. It feeds on itself. Uh, it kind of makes you understand how cults work, but in a much more in a much more <laughs> beneficial way than a cult operates. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My uh, my 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 triumph on that front is a campaign called Shadows Angelus, which ran for two years back in Maryland, and uh, uh, it was it was a very very successful game. We did like twenty six episodes uh, or sessions of it. And, you know, I look, I look and see the, the webpage that my friends made for that game, which has like 90 different in-character stories that the, the players wrote. And, uh, my friend and fellow game designer, Mike Serbrook, who was in that group, actually wrote an article for, uh, Haymaker magazine called The Best Game I Ever Played, which was about Shadows Angeles. And, and to me, that's like my trophy, right? You know, I, I think that's, that's the thing I look at and say, you know, I actually can, can do this. Yeah, I saw that website. I was wondering, can we talk a little bit about that initial exploration into gaming? 
that discovery of what gaming is about beyond, say, the basic Dungeons & Dragons and things of that nature. Yeah. Well, you know, it was really the gateway for me was reading Dragon Magazine. Um, oh, yeah, that was such a great thing back in the 80s. Loved it. Yeah, because, uh, you know, like, I mean, I started playing D&D like people do, um, and then I started to read Dragon, and what was great about Dragon in the early days was that they had articles about all kinds of stuff. It wasn't just a D&D magazine, and so it was really reading Dragon that introduced me to the, the wider world of hobby games. Um, you know, that's how I ended up... Uh, going in and buying some Avalon Hill games and getting into wargaming and, you know, just all sorts of stuff. It was yeah. really brought to life by Dragon in, uh, in a, a great way. Do you remember the Ares section they used to have, which was oh, all yeah. about like sci-fi games and it had, you know, it, that's where I saw my first champion stat block. That's where I first learned about Traveler. Um, and I, there was some amazing short fiction from Shadowrun that was published. I saw my very first Games Workshop miniature, and I still remember exactly what it was. In the pages of, of Dragon Magazine, it was called the Goblobber. Oh, yeah. And, and it was an old dwarven <laughs> catapult that fired a big net full of goblins at the enemy. <laughs> this I is have why I can't play Warhammer. I can't. That's, I just can't play a world where they do that. And, you know, and, and of course this, you know, refers back to my career very, very strongly. Dragon Magazine's also the very first time I found out what Space Marines are when it comes to Warhammer 40k. They had this brief little thing about a Space Marine, like, waiting in ambush to kill an orc. And the orc, like, spits over the parapet and it lands on his weapon and the Space Marine's like, I must avenge the honor of the war spirit in my war gear. And I was like, oh wow, that's, totally different than anything I've ever heard of before. Yeah. No, that stuff was cool. That, that was like, for as much as they throw in goblins, full, you know, you know, stuck in nets at things, the other side of that was always very uh, evocative. I'll agree. And for me, Dragon Magazine, you know, you're right. It's like, I, I really respect what Gygax Magazine is trying to do in resurrecting at least the feel of that, those days, because there was a time when Dragon Magazine was, was very graciously the, the doorway into the greater hobby. You know, it wasn't just, look, Dungeons and Dragons all the time and that's all there is. We, you know, you can't think of anything else. They were wonderful about, you know, here's gaming. You know, here's, here's the hobby. Here's a, here's a way to look at everything. I saw my first stuff about champions in Dragon Magazine. And then when I was given my first chance to play, and you talk about, you know, our, our, our moment where we start seeing other games that we can play and the broader possibilities. It was at West Point. Strangely enough for me, and I met some fellow nerds who uh, <laughs> weren't quite, you know, we were, we were there, we belonged there, but we didn't belong necessarily there with all the rest of the guys that belonged there in the same way. So we're up in the computer lab area because there's tables up there and nobody will bother us. And uh, Colin Hotnit, uh, may he rest in peace, he uh, unfortunately had a heart problem that took him out way too early in this world, but uh, he was the guy who ran my first Champions game. And what an epiphany that was. <laughs> I mean, uh, a game system with no class and levels, a game system where I build my character, uh, you know, point build, what is this? So that from there, uh, all the manifest possibilities of the hobby started to really explode a lot for me. Um, I'd say my career may have sort of started at, uh, at that moment I first play, played uh, Star Knight for the first time. Well, the thing was, I, you know, I did not have a lot of money to buy game stuff, you know. When I got Dragon Magazine, I read it cover to cover, often multiple times, because, you know, that's what I had to read. And so, like, I had not, previous to that, 
been much of a reader of comics, but when they had those Marvel files in Dragon Magazine, oh, yeah, those like, were great. I read all those. That's how I learned about so many of those characters, just by reading those articles. You mm-hmm. know, I was like, well, I haven't read the comics, but I'm going to read an article that's going to tell me about Wolverine now. Okay, you know. Um, and yeah, I was just introduced to a lot of stuff that way. Uh, and even, honestly, um, Gen Con. They used to actually include in Dragon the um, the entire events listing for Gen Con. So if you want to pre-register, you could look at the events and then send in what you want to play. And uh, and even though I knew I couldn't go, I would read the event listings just to see like what are people doing at Gen Con, you know. And that gave me this image of how awesome Gen Con must be because oh. I would see like oh someone's doing you know um the battle of helms deep as a miniatures game at gen con oh my god i'd love to do that you know <laughs> oh my god chris uh, do, so, can you imagine two of us both staring up at the same stars as we were looking doing exactly the same thing <laughs> two worlds apart because i swear to god you just described exactly what i did too i mean that's i mean wow because i exactly that is you couldn't be there but I'm, there was that sense of i'm getting that song from american yeah town, exactly yeah, yeah. so yeah when i had the opportunity to go to gen con like i i it's a, i had a roommate in college who was from Milwaukee and some of his friends came to stay with us in New York City and they were like well the unlikely event you ever want to come to Milwaukee you could stay with us and I was like seriously because there's a convention there I totally want to go to and six months later I was crashing on their couch you know and I went to my first Gen Con and it was awesome so you know we ought to do Daryl some kind of episode just about Dragon Magazine at some point Uh, maybe Dragon and Dungeon combined because those were amazing things for sure and I'm actually from a slightly different gamer generation. I was born in 1980, so I'm the young kid on this episode. <laughs> but I I had kind of a similar experience, because by the time I had gotten into Dragon and Dungeon, they were just Dungeons and Dragons all the yeah. time. But there were two other things. One was something from when I was really young. Um, there was a distributor of games called War Games West. Oh, yes. That would put out a catalog. It was kind of like the preview catalog that you get from comic book stores now. But it was just all the games, like these little descriptions and sales blurbs of them, I would read through and just like, I want to try this game, I want to try this game, I want to try this game. The other one was something that was kind of a stopgap uh, for a while. It was Shadis oh, Magazine. Oh, Shadis. I wrote for Shadis. Awesome. <laughs> I wrote for, for yep, Shadis. Well, dude, check that out. We got two two Shadis <laughs> writers here. Man, if we could just get Jolly Blackburn, we'd have a trifecta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think my first Star Wars gaming thing ever was for Shadis Magazine. It was something called The Spark Before the Flame. It was about uh, running Star Wars prior to when all the big you know, big name characters became important so that your characters could be important instead. Did it have Gungans? <laughs> Probably and, didn't exist when he was writing and, this. And no one heard from Ross again. <laughs> 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 so Sean did prequels before there were prequels. Yes, I did. I did the right prequels. <laughs> so, Ross, you keep forgetting Sean knows where you sleep, don't you? <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I mean, I think I think we're all talking the same language here about rites of passage. I'd absolutely drag a magazine and branching out and learning about you know, I, I think what we're really talking about here is like being part of a community. 
right? Is we're yeah. seeing we're seeing things in Shadus and we're seeing things in the in the mag in the um, sorry the catalog, and we're seeing things that like the idea of Gen Con, and we're realizing we're not just some isolated people out there playing a game that some you know faceless company is making. We're actually part of a movement, part of a subculture. Well, it's much easier to find subcultures now because of the internet. But you know, before the internet, like you know, you had to work at it. You know, um, <laughs> and you know, it was the same for me with punk rock and with gaming, where it was just like things that I got into. That's like I could not, you know, go to the mall and and find out more about punk rock. You know, like that was not happening. And surprisingly um, enough, Chris, I think there's a big crossover there in that. A lot of the punk rock and gaming stuff all happened because you saw a flyer pinned on corkboard somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, um, But yeah, you know, it's like I had to go. I I grew up outside of Boston in a suburb called Peabody. And, you know, one of the things I would do when I went into Boston, it was like that was like where I would go to try to connect with my various subcultures, you know, Um, go to Harvard Square, hang out with the punks, go to Newbury Comics, you know, go to uh, the games people play and uh, complete strategist and check out the new gaming stuff and, you know, all that sort of thing. It was... uh, I'm, I'm gonna. I was about to sound like an old man, so I'm gonna stop now. Uh, oh, but, <laughs> oh, too late. Too late. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, for, for for me back in the day, it was uh, the train and hobby shops. That's where it was happening because nobody else knew what the hell to do with it, except Spencer's. When I first discovered the existence of D and D, my mom and I went on a quest. You know, you, you I mean all we was missing was you know swords versus orcs to to get through the the wilderness of of you know American retail in 1977, uh, and and Spencer's Gifts was one of the only places where you could find that you know not the three book box set but the box set that had the dragon sitting on the pile of gold looking out at the two guys going oh crap what did we just do. Now, kids who listen, Spencer Gifts used to sell more than Playboy merchandise and <laughs> sex toys. Yes, they did. Yeah, they, they didn't used to just be Hot Topic under a different name. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. They sold Call of Cthulhu, which is so weird to me. It was just like, oh, you, you can go to Spencer's <laughs> Gifts and get like a like a knit condom and um, Call of Cthulhu. Because there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that goes together. Yeah. Now, you know, for, for our listeners who are, you know, not living in the past like we are. Um, oh, there are ways to feel part of the community and, and probably as the new modern rite of passage for that. I would say, or at least I'm going to propose, and I want to hear what the guests think of this, but I'm going to propose that it's really about the time you write something or you say something that people respond to, like a blog post or a tweet or a forum thread. Yeah, yeah. Uh, getting identified as one of the fans who other people want to pay attention to what you're saying. I think that's a big moment for people. If you get, if you, if you latch onto something, uh, these days, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're reveling in the past because rites of passage, it's a, it's about your, your history with a, with a hobby or history with something. But, oh my gosh, uh, I am so thrilled with 21st century, uh, game community building. It's so wonderful to see. I mean, yes. There's all the things that people can say about, oh, they're on the internet and they're yelling and screaming and it's so easy to be an asshole. Well, yes, of course, but that's internet community, period. But the burgeoning potential of creativity, of user-created content, of the ability of a fan to share something cool with other fans and all of them then build and rift off that, 
uh, I watched that happen with Savage Worlds, and so did Shane. And Shane was just beyond thrilled and built a community, an amazing community around Savage Worlds based purely on the fact that his system invited such creativity and such shared creativity amongst the Savage fans. And I mean, there's certainly the game systems, but this is just one I had the personal experience with. It was, it was mind-blowing as I delved into that and watched the, the, that. And so I knew I watched friends who stepped up and became – you know, I, I'm sort of into gaming, but wow, now people are actually interested in what I have to say. That's a, that was a, I, was, I love watching their eyes wide and we're like, oh my God, somebody responded to what I said about this and they think it's a good idea. It's like, yeah, welcome, welcome to game development. As a, I had the same thing as kind of a 20th, more of a late 20th century thing with Dump Shock and Shadowrun, uh, the online forums, the quote unquote official, unofficial forums that have been around since back in the FASA days. And I was a regular on those boards sporadically and I would go on there and post and peep, I would, I would go on there and post for a while and then I would, uh, stuff would get in the way and I would just switch to another sis. I was running a D and D game. So I wasn't playing Shadowrun or reading the books. And then I would go back and post them. It's like, Oh, Hey, you're back. I'm like, Holy shit. You recognize me. <laughs> Chris, you have uh, something to say about that as well. Well, you know, the internet is really powerful and it makes a lot of things easier, which is good. You know, it is unfortunate that there are, um, as many toxic people as there are who want to take the good things and crap all over them. Um, so we should and- stop hiring them as consultants, <laughs> is what you're saying. <laughs> Zing. If you see what uh, I did there. I do see what you did there. Uh, well, yeah, that doesn't help, certainly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, anyway. Yeah, anyway um, I I like conventions because I find that when you interact with people face to face, things tend to just be more positive. You know, um, every year when we do Gen Con, it really sort of lifts the spirits of everyone in the company because it's very easy to sit at your computer every day and just have people, you know, complaining at you all the time and, and get worn down by that, you know? Um, and we always come out of Gen Con feeling so much better because it's four days of people coming by the booth and telling us, you know, how happy they are at at the games that they're playing with our stuff. And it's just such a great antidote for internet negativity. And I think, you know, even if you're not in the industry, conventions can, can be the same way where you're, you're going and meeting new people and playing games with them. And, you know, it's, it's a fun thing to do. And, uh, people are much less likely to be jerks to you, (laughs) you know, when you're sitting down to play a game together than if they're, you know, if they're just on the internet spouting off. I, I always thought it was more, and it's kind of goes back to my video game days when I stopped playing video games for a long time because I got sick of playing online because when I played online, I played co-op with my friends or played versus on my friends. They always knew I could punch them in the face. If they pissed me off enough. The guys online, you can't really punch anyone through the internet yet, but I'm working on it. And as soon as I do it, I'm going to be a trillionaire. I want to go back to something Chris had talked about earlier. I think he made a really excellent point. I want to kind of revisit that. Um, he talked about the way that you can spread out from gaming and just a, a, a role player or as just any kind of really thing to other um, types of games in our industry. And I mean like, you know, really cool special board games like Chris brought up Avalon Hill or miniature games. I mean, I know myself, I went from, uh, you know, just D&D to Battletech and to, you know, I played Wooden Ships and Iron Men and, and, and I, I really 
did branch out and try new games because I was part of that gaming community and because D&D had led me to an understanding that gaming was a special thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, th- there were certainly gamers who who identified quite a bit with one particular style of gaming going back to the dawn of gaming. But, you know, because I was young and reading Dragon Magazine and no one told me any different, I just figured... This is all gaming, right? So, you have miniatures. Those look cool. I'd like to try that. And, oh, squad leader, you say? Well, that sounds interesting. And, and, uh, <laughs> you know, you like, you'll see people who are like, I do wargaming and nothing but wargaming, or I'm an RPG guy, or, you know, I'm a story games person. And, you know, and like, that's, that's what they want to do. But there, there is this wider world and, you know, role, role playing games came out of wargaming. You know, that's the, the origin of it. And I've had a lot of fun over the years, you know, exploring different facets of the hobby. Uh, I have way more miniatures than I could count and <laughs> continue to. Are a lot of them <laughs> Imperial Guard by chance? Uh, I do have a fair number of Imperial Guard, yes. <laughs> I, I do think a, a very positive rite of passage is exactly that, that transitioning uh, into other just even the broader scale but uh, you know uh, other geekdom right and realizing that suddenly there's this <clears throat> this awareness and this is much more today i mean you, you made the very good point earlier ross and, and and certainly dale you're a living example of the fact that uh, for us it was the convention was our opportunity to tap into that wider uh, audience and then occasionally like the newsletter thing and stuff as we were coming up and then AOL right I mean say what you will but America Online really broke open the concept of being able to to connect easily and socially online uh, which the gaming community responded to really well especially if they stopped charging for a minute but uh, you know it was just we were talking about other games I'm sitting here looking very proudly at my first regiment Irish Brigade flag I got from the first time I ever played that one and I, I, I'm sorry sorry if I forgot the name I think it's Ace of Aces but modified that guy had the cool telescoping uh, antenna with the magnets on the bottom of the amazing little model airplanes. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, you could, you, you, you did your thing. And he, of course you had the wooden consoles with the little spent shell casings as your bullets to represent your, your, your stuff. And I started playing that occasionally because the one thing while I was working for Gamma that I was allowed to do, that I had time to do, which I had to go back to work, but I, I did really well with that. And it was like a, a wake-up call. It's like, there's other cool games. There's other cool ways to game. There's other cool things to do in this hobby. I discovered anime because of my involvement with gaming. I discovered lots of other geekdom I'm pretty sure I would not have necessarily tapped into because of my involvement with the gaming community. So that was a huge positive epiphany slash rite of passage for me was this other wide world of really interesting ways to entertain and, uh, and socialize. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I want to get, uh, there's one other big thing I want to do here before we kind of wrap up this topic. I want to ask you guys, uh, Chris and Sean, what do you feel is the most important thing that our listeners should keep in mind about all of these gaming rites of passages that we've talked about tonight? Um, well, I mean, I would just keep in mind that, that this is a hobby and something that you're doing to have fun. And it can happen that people get caught up in, in a bunch of sort of peripheral bullshit and drama and whatever. And it's just not worth it, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's caught up in sort of peripheral drama and nonsense. And, um, and just remember that games are about having fun 
with your friends and sometimes meet new people and make new friends. And, you know, that's, that's really what you should focus on, I guess. That's my feel good <laughs> summation. <laughs> and, and for me, uh, it's, it's important to remember that a lot of these rites of passage are things that are, should be a way to bond with your fellow gamer. They shouldn't be used as a way to gatekeep. It's, Oh, you haven't done this yeah. yet. No, no, no. They will eventually. It may not happen. These things, these things don't happen on a strict timeline. Some people may never have these experiences, but it's a way for us to, it's like we were saying before, we share a common language. And I sit here and say, that guy, Chris knows exactly what I'm talking about. If I say Tucker's Cobalt, you know the story I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, that's that sort of shared experience, you know, is very powerful. And it's you know, it's one of the reasons that people still go back and reference like the classic D and D modules, because those are experiences mm-hmm. that we all shared even though we were separated by thousands of miles, you know? Like, oh, do you remember when you did the fire giant module and, and that sort of thing? And and you know So did anyone jump into the mouth of the mask on the yeah, wall? Yeah. For example. I got him to do it three times. I have no idea how the hell I managed that. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's so much to gaming now. I mean, you know, there's just, there's so many games. Um, it's, it's staggering, you know, the amount of, of stuff that just comes out on a regular basis. And, and, you know, there's still all the classic games. It's not like they go bad, you know, so you, you have much choice in, uh, in the games that you play. And I think it's about time for us to go ahead and wrap up. There's one more kind of rite of passage that, uh, unfortunately, Ross and Sean had to jump off the episode real fast. Uh, their uh, movers for Ross's permanent stuff is getting to Denver right now, so he had to uh, run and take care of that. But I want to go ahead and ask Chris about a rite of passage that you and Ross and Sean all share that I kind of do not. But what was it like that first time you got a role-playing game product that you designed published. Oh, well, um, it, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> um, <laughs> the first professional work I did was on um, a, a game called Underground that Mayfair Games published. Uh, it's designed by Ray Winninger. And um, and I did some work on two of the supplements for that, uh, the Underground Player's Handbook and the Underground Companion. And it was, I don't know, maybe 10,000 words or something like that. So not a huge assignment, but it was something and it was professionally published and they paid me. So, you know, when I got the books in the mail, um, it was super <laughs> exciting, you know, to, uh, after years of, of buying role playing books and sort of thrilling to the content to see my own name in one of them was, was terrific. Yeah. I unfortunately don't have that, but I have. Do you remember the first time I got published for any cool news talking about tabletop games? And for me, the big thing is I'm now, when I was growing up, I really didn't pay a lot of attention to those names under the, under the third or fourth page of all the people that designed it. And now I, I, I really never did even in my twenties, but recently I have learned to at least skim it because I keep saying, Oh, I know that guy. Oh, I know that guy. Oh, that, I know that guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. When I open up, when I open up that Emerald Spiral, I'm like, okay, I know him. He's been on the podcast. I know him. He, I, I know Chris on Facebook. And so that, that was, that was for me. It's kind of cool. And, and again, it's kind of stepping into that larger community in a way. Uh-huh. And there's one, I, I'm, I'm really sad they had to jump off because I wanted to hear their experiences as well. But what was it like the first time you met someone in the gaming industry that you really respected and admired that you considered one of your idols in the industry? 
I was nervous about it, I guess, because you, you know, <laughs> you never know who in real life is going to turn out to be cool and who's going to be jerky. Yeah. I have on occasion met people who are jerky, um, but probably, I guess, the first person uh, that I was like, wow, I can't believe I met that person and had a conversation with them was Greg Stafford, um, a mm-hmm. longtime Chaosium guy, creator of Glorantha and uh, designer of Pendragon. And uh, I think it was like my my second Gen Con in 1990. Um, I went by the Chaosium booth um, to pick up uh, the new edition of Pendragon and Greg was there and I ended up spending a fair amount of time talking to him about um, about the Arthurian mythos. I was like, wow, that was cool talking about King Arthur with Greg Stafford because, um, mm-hmm. you know, the amount of research he put into Pendragon is just freaking amazing. So, so yeah, that was really cool and positive. So I, I've always remembered that. And for me, it's always the realizing that there's nothing separating you from them other than possibly writing talent or knowing the right people or whatever it is, whatever it takes to get published. And we have an episode all about how to get into the industry. But when you sit down and talk to them, you realize that they're just gamer geeks too, for the most yeah. part. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, as, as an industry, the, di- you know, like the difference between the people behind the booth and the people in front of the booth, you know, it's, it's not all that great. I mean, you know, we'd say this is a, an industry that was founded by and is maintained by hobbyists. And so, you know, most of the people in the game industry are, are people who were gamers who, you know, want to do it either semi-professionally or professionally because it's something that they really like. Because almost no one gets into this industry to become rich. No, no. There, you will in some of the larger companies find, you know, people on the business side who are indifferent gamers at best. Um, but that, you know, that's pretty rare. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, you know, almost everyone you you meet in the game industry, you know, they they come out of a gaming background because yeah, there's there's really you could do almost anything else and make a better living. So you better love it. All right. So that about wraps things up here. Uh, so, Chris, why don't you go ahead and tell us uh what it is that you have coming out soon and where people can find you on the interwebs. Uh, so I am at Premis on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, I have a blog, but I haven't honestly done much with it the last couple of years. Um, <laughs> um, and of course, Green Renin is greenrenin.com. Um, we're actually running a Kickstarter right now for a party game called Love to Hate. Um, it is the party game for inappropriate people. Um, it is up until August 8th. Um, if you go to Kickstarter and look for Love to Hate or Green Renin, uh, you should be able to find it. And um, uh, check out the video. It teaches you how to play the game in like two minutes, and um, it's fun. So we are about to release Gadget Guides, which is the next Mutants and Masterminds book. Um, that is essentially a, a big book of, of pre-built gadgets of various sorts um, that Steve Kenson designed. Uh, we're also on the same day, which is August 4th, releasing a reprint of a, the uh, Song of Ice and Fire core rulebook. Um, that has been out of print for some months. And uh, this, is the, this is the original one based on the books, not the Game of Thrones version based on the show, right? Well, there's only one role-playing like the game. Same one. So. Well, yes, yeah, it's but, based on the books. Yes. The, the one that I keep linking because it's the only one in print is the one that's the Game of Thrones edition or something. Oh, yeah, that's what it's called. It's the it's the Game of Thrones edition. It's just the core rulebook has been out of print. So, um, so okay. it is now back in print. Okay. Um, 
And then at Gen Con, we should have Icons, which is uh, Steve Kenson's other superhero role-playing game, because Steve yeah, loves edition, right? role, uh, superheroes, <laughs> well, and role-playing games. Yeah, we actually had uh, Steve on for our episode on superhero role-playing oh, games. Oh, great. And then shortly after that, maybe at Gen Con, it's really going to depend on if the stars are right as far as the printers go, uh, we'll have set three for the Dragon Age role-playing game. Nice. Yes. I know a lot of people have been looking forward to yes. that. Yes. <laughs> yes. It is long overdue, uh, but finally yeah. almost here. And so I'm very glad that's coming out because that was a system that I thought was really, really good for introducing new players to the game because it's so streamlined and fast and easy to pick up, but it still has the same sort of concepts that if you want to move on to other role-playing games like a d20 thing like mutants and masterminds or if you want to move on to uh something else that it gives you a good foundation of role-playing games that a lot of the i don't want to say introductory games because dragon age has a lot of depth to it but it, it seemed like it had a lot more going on for it than a lot of those games do yeah it was designed to be someone's first role-playing game if they had never tried tabletop before you know we were hoping um fans of the video game series um who were interested mm-hmm. in in tabletop uh would check it out so uh certainly being on tabletop was quite helpful <laughs> <laughs> yes and it's an amazing two-part episode you can also find in our show notes as oh, well great. and it's will wheaton's birthday today so happy birthday will yep uh when we're recording it is officially don't be a That's dick right. day so that about wraps things up for this week um uh, unfortunately, I'm not Ross. I'm gonna butcher his catchphrase probably, but may all your hits be crits. Have you been looking for a dark fantasy RPG setting? Are you interested in seeing a new take on the action horror genre? Then you should check out Accursed. Accursed is a setting for the Savage Worlds RPG created by me, Ross Watson, and my good friends Jason Marker and John Dunn. It is a world where the heroes are monsters who fight for redemption against the witches who have conquered their land. To find out more about Accursed, search for Accursed on drivethroughrpg.com. Accursed is now on sale there and in many other fine retailers for gaming PDFs. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy Accursed.